stars of the Mermaid Man movie are here tonight! Yeah! Directly from the set, here they are! Hello, little heroes. Uh-huh. You're not Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. You're fakes. Well, of course we are. We're actors. Actors? How can you make a Mermaid Man movie without the real Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy? Listen, kid. This is an action movie. Your has-been heroes are too old for action. Mermaid Man is timeless. <laughs> I think I speak for everyone here when I say we won't stand for these two phony balonies ruining the good name of our heroes. No right-minded Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy Society member would ever pay to see this, this celluloid hoax. I say we boycott this movie. Now, who's with me? to the most porous podcast you're going to find along your travels of the tubes of the internet. I'm ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. And it's a pleasure to welcome you aboard on today's episode where we are celebrating the greatest heroes to exist under the ocean. And no, I'm not talking about Aquaman. Get out of here, Jason Momoa. And I'm not talking about Namor the Submariner, who, to be fair, came out before Aquaman. But get on out of here with your talacan and whatnot. No, today we're talking about Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. Six, the motion picture. I'm your captain, Captain Eric, and it is legitimately great to welcome you here because I have an email to set the stages for what I originally wanted to talk about on today's episode a little bit, but because of a listener and their email expanded on this topic, to an entirely new degree, and still, this is all Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy related. So, if you are a fan, well, just sit down, put up your feet, take a walk, drive in your car, however you decide to listen to podcasts, and let's get to it. To set the stage for this episode, beyond the sound of my iced coffee, which is not being purposely um, mixed around, that sound is not appealing to me whatsoever. I have a black coffee. There just happens to be ice in it. But other than that, to set the stage for this episode is an email sent to the official email to the show, spongepodpodcast at gmail.com. So all of you on the Ready Crew, write that email down. Send me your suggestions. Send me questions. Maybe you could be the focus like this on an episode. This is an email sent to me from Stella, who sent this email a few weeks ago, but... It was so appropriate for today's episode that I had to uh, hold off. I had to hold off from responding to it until today. Hi, Captain Eric. My name is Stella, and I am one of those adults who cannot get enough of SpongeBob. I am also the daughter of a World War II vet, something I have never heard mentioned about the cast of SpongeBob SquarePants is that our resident quasi-superheroes Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy played by Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway, were once heroes together above the same sea. They starred in the 60s sitcom McHale's Navy as Captain Quentin McHale and Ensign Charles Parker, respectively, Borgnine as McHale and uh, Conway as Parker. The setting of the show was in the South Pacific, 
and had storylines involving the crazy antics of the crew of the PT-73, a patrol boat serving in the Second World War. My father served in exactly the same areas mentioned on McHale's Navy, most notably the island of New Caledonia, a French-occupied territory between the Coral Sea and the South Pacific. I think, unconsciously at first, that this has always been one of many reasons for loving the show. I hope this causes listeners to maybe look up McHale's Navy and have a small, gentle reminder of the sacrifices and courage of our greatest generation. And if they do, I hope that they take the opportunity to share the show with their kids so that we can learn from that history. Stella, I cannot thank you enough for your email and for your information and for sharing a little bit of your personal life and why there may be a stronger connection to why you love SpongeBob SquarePants that is is deeply rooted in your personal life and the experiences of your family. Isn't that isn't that wonderful? And that is all about a little bit of why I do this podcast. If anyone asks, why do you do a podcast about SpongeBob? It's it's because of this. It's not just about SpongeBob. It's all of those little connections that eventually we can find into our personal lives and and we can share them and so on and so forth. So I thank you for your email and it certainly helped for a chunk of the trajectory of this episode. Anytime we have Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy on the show, I want to talk about Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway. And it's certainly an interesting piece of information when you see the two actors and where they came from, starring in the show that you had mentioned, McHale's Navy, which I haven't really talked about at at its fullest on this show. And since this is the last numbered Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy episode, I, I say let's celebrate the two actors who helped bring life to Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy, Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway. They will certainly appear on the show for a few more episodes. Do not fret. This is not the final Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy episode. But even from the title card, even though this is a numbered episode, it has a different background than what we're used to in every other single numbered episode in this lineup. So it's it's almost like a soft reboot in a way, which is is really ironic because you would think with what the superhero film industry would end up becoming, you would think that this episode must have come out right in the middle of that. And it certainly did to an extent, but it came out right in the infant stages of of this boom, 2005. So it, it's a little ahead of its time in that regard. But before we get to the episode at hand, let's let's look into a little bit of the lives of Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway and actually some of the connections I have with them watching them on screen when I was a kid in the 90s, which wasn't of McHale's Navy. I actually have no recollection of catching this show on Nick at Night or TV Land or any of the other syndicated television stations that would air older shows. McHale's Navy was a show that first started out as a TV movie called Seven Against the Sea in 1962. And it starred Ernest Borgnine as Quentin McHale in an hour-long drama. This was like a dramatic movie. And Borgnine, let me tell you, 
if you look at Ernest Borgnine in a lineup of any slew of actors, he stands out like a sore thumb and is a leading man through and through. To his credit, even before McHale's Navy, I had no idea that that this movie existed, and I want to give it uh, its just due here, and I'm certainly going to check it out knowing what it ended up winning. But the 1955 film Marty won the Academy Award for Best Actor for Ernest Borgnine in the role. I believe it was also nominated for Best Picture at the same Academy Awards, but still, it doesn't really matter. Ernest Borgnine himself is an Academy Award-winning actor who then, in 1962, would star in the one-shot Seven Against the Sea, which was successful enough to earn a TV series based off of that that one-shot called Mikhail's Navy. This turned up the comedy a little bit more, and this this patrol boat out in the South Pacific, as, as Stella had mentioned in their email, um, is, is meant to obviously keep patrol and keep the waters safe. And at the end of the day, even though this is a comedy and the characters may be a little aloof and, and may not be the most military professionals you would ever see, at the end of the day, they still get the job done. They still win any battle they find themselves in. And you know what? That's that's what it's all about. It's kind of like the TV show version of Beetle Bailey, which I'm just realizing is also a fairly dated reference. I don't even know if Beetle Bailey is still in comic strips in like the newspapers and whatnot. But anyway, the whole concept is even though the characters themselves are not the most professional, they have good hearts, they have good souls, and they get the job done at the end of the day. That's the whole point, and then you can have fun. And boy, did these guys have fun. They were a crew of uh, of some wild cats. And among them, second in command to Ernest Borgnine as, as Mikhail was Tim Conway as Ensign Charles Parker, which I never watched the show. So I had no idea what episode would be best to watch after I received Stella's email. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to brew some coffee and I'm going to dive right into Mikhail's Navy and luckily, there were plenty of free episodes to find on YouTube, and the first one I picked had a cold open that had a beautiful bit of comedy between Borgnine and Conway right at the beginning that just warmed my heart in a way. It warmed my heart knowing that at least somebody behind the production of SpongeBob saw these two, saw the comedic potential, knew that they would be the perfect for these characters who, you know, from the introduction of SpongeBob SquarePants, from the initial pitch, were not the same Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy that you would get to see on screen. So certainly somewhere in the development of the show, things changed. Steven Hillenberg's original idea was for there to always be a Mermaid Man, although his original design was certainly a little bit different than that that we would eventually get. But his partner in crime was not originally Barnacle Boy, but was another elderly sailor that was a member of the Shady Shoals Retirement Home, or I'm just guessing they would eventually get to that name as well, Barnacle Bill, who has an absolutely unforgettable design once you see it. 
and I'm glad that they would eventually use this character in the SpongeBob comics. So shout out to all of those involved to eventually reuse this character. But somewhere throughout the development of the show, they changed these characters into a, a Batman 66-esque undersea TV show. And someone had the genius idea, Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway for, for the voices, which is just unforgettable casting. It's perfect. For both actors, it brings a lot of their strengths to the table. And in a lot of the same ways, it's the same strengths that they were bringing to the table decades earlier on McHale's Navy. So thank you to whoever behind the scenes of SpongeBob SquarePants brought all these worlds together. And speaking of McHale's Navy, I enjoyed what I was able to enjoy from the show. And that's... That's with an asterisk because it's tough for me to get into black and white shows that I wasn't originally into already. You know, I haven't seen every episode of I Love Lucy, but I watched it enough with my mom that if you put on an episode, I could sit down and enjoy it. If I've never seen the show before, it's it's a tough sit for me, but having Borgnine at the, at the forefront was was enough to keep me interested. If you enjoy, when I say black and white comedy, you should understand if you enjoy that type of humor or know what you're getting into. If you enjoy black and white comedies in any way, then you should at least give Mikhail's Navy a shot. If you enjoy older shows in any way, give it a shot. It's worth it. And there's free episodes, like I said, on YouTube. There were three theatrical films based on the show made two of them while the show was on television one simply titled Mikhail's Navy in 1964 with the original cast Mikhail joins the Air Force which starred essentially Tim Conway Ernest Borgnine did not star in the sequel to the original movie Tim Conway starred in it but was also present in the show as well and in the 90s they rebooted the television show as uh, another action comedy starring Tom Arnold and Tim Curry. I have no interest in watching Tom Arnold in McHale's Navy, but I do have a lot of interest in watching Tim Curry in McHale's Navy. And when I saw the trailer, my eyes were glued to the screen anytime Tim Curry was shown because it seems like one of those juicy, exquisite acting moments for Tim Curry where he can just chew on the scenery, chew the script up, and just, ah, love it. If you know what I'm talking about, then yeah, you're a Tim Curry fan. It was great to go down the rabbit hole, which started with Mikhail's Navy, Mikhail's rabbit hole, if you will. So thank you, Stella for sending me down that, seeing the connections between Mikhail's Navy, Ernest Borgnine, Tim Conway, and their eventual run as Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy on SpongeBob was was wonderful. I actually had a lot of exposure to both Ernest and Tim throughout the 90s without even knowing that they would, you know, end up being these voices that would be so prevalent in my world. When I was a kid... One of my favorite movies 
was the 1998 film Basketball, which has an appearance of Ernest Borgnine as the tycoon uh, Ted Denslow, who ends up coming into the story to help fund our heroes' dream of bringing basketball from driveways into stadiums. Eventually, Ted Denslow bites the dust, and because of that, sets off a motion of events that take on the rest of the film. But Ernest Borgnine's portrayal as this character always had my imagination. I watched that movie so much. At an age, I probably shouldn't have been watching that movie, but I watched it so much that when I eventually had the connection between that character from that movie and Mermaid Man, and the the bulb went up in my head as them being one and the same, Mermaid Man immediately became one of my favorite characters in SpongeBob SquarePants, and honestly, even outside of the show, because of how much I I loved the, the comedic performance of this actor. Well, I found another use for it. It feels so good. It makes me want to sing. Just like that night we spent in the tattoo parlor in Chicago. Come on, baby. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm this Academy Award Too sexy for my car. Too sexy by far. Who I adore. I adore someone who can take the craft that seriously, but at the same time be able to undress their shirt a little bit and apply Vicks to their chest. Tim Conway, on the other hand, I had no idea throughout the 90s. My grandfather had a series of tapes of this little character going by the name of Dorf. And Dorf was this Swedish-sounding European accent gentleman who was told to you as the audience to be a super athlete, and he was going to show you everything there is to know about whatever sport it is at hand he was he was showing you, whether it was golf, fishing, lifting weights, jockeying a horse. Dorf was there to give you some comedic foil. Dorf was created by Tim Conway himself, for an episode of The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and premiered the character all the way back on January 3rd, 1986. The horse jockey was actually the first job of Dorf. And of course, horse jockeys are uh, notoriously smaller men because the the less you weigh, the the less weight you're, you're applying to the horse, therefore the horse could potentially go faster. But the point of Dorf was that instead of just sitting on his knees, Tim actually was in a platform where he would step inside two holes. They would apply shoes at his kneecaps, a pillow inside of his shirt to give this character more of a pot belly, and because of this would give the character these extra long arms. And this entire unique appearance alongside Tim's Swedish-esque accent and his overall use of props would just complete the character of Dorf, who from the get-go was a fan favorite from that one appearance. A year later, Dorf would appear in a short video that you could purchase either through a commercial on television or possibly in in some stores at the time. Uh, Dorf on golf 
which was one of the tapes that my grandfather had of this character. And, and it was just, even the physical comedy aspect of it was hilarious to me. And releasing your own videos was really the only way to put out your own content back in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. There wasn't a YouTube. There wasn't uh, a television channel that was accessible enough that you could just go to. If you didn't have your own TV show and you didn't have your own movie series as a fictional character, you could certainly showcase this character to the public through uh, stand-up comedy on your own or as a part of various improv comedy troops out in the world like Second City or The Groundlings. There are certainly ways you could showcase your your character skills, but back in the day, the, the main means to do so and, and to make money off of it was to release your own videos, to find a distributor, to make your own movie, and then you can release it out to the world, which, come to think of it, is extremely appropriate given today's episode at hand. Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy 6, the motion picture. Very much in line with what Tim Conway was doing with Dorf, continuing the character on his own, doing whatever with what he wanted to do with that character. And of course, if you find a distributor who's willing to work with you, they may make some recommendations on their end as far as what you do with that character. But usually, if you are the creative voice you are the character. You you usually have free reign to do with what you please. Now, into the world of SpongeBob SquarePants we go, as today's episode covers Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy 6, The Motion Picture, the second half of the 67th episode of SpongeBob SquarePants first premiered on October 7th, 2005. Our storyboard directors for this episode... For the first time ever, Casey Alexander and Chris Mitchell, who co-wrote this episode alongside Paul Tibbet. Our animation director is Andrew Overtoom. Our technical director is Vincent Waller. And as always, our supervising producer is Paul Tibbet. Oh yeah! So you may think in some regard this episode is based off of what has been going on in, in Marvel World, but remember, this was made around 2004, released in 2005, or, or at least made in the beginning of 2005, at a time when superhero movies were still on their rise. This was still the infancy of this boom of, of cinematic use of comic books. Of course, there have been superhero movies that existed before the 90s, but it wasn't until X-Men and Spider-Man that that the film industry started looking at comic books a little bit differently. Before these two movies came out, a superhero movie was not a guarantee at the box office. If anything, comic books were poison. Unless you were Batman or Superman, or you were a known entity that could get away with, you know, having a crummy movie, you were not really box office gold. And there really were not many hits at all if you were superhero-based or based on a comic book before before the, the advent of the early 2000s. X-Men laid the cement down. Spider-Man paved that cement. 
And then a few other subpar movies over the next few years would try to break apart that cement slab. Eventually, the cement would be turned into iron in 2008 with the release of Iron Man and Marvel being able to just make movies on their own and and not have to worry about other producers coming in and having to throw their own two cents into the into the mix of of either visual or, or story terms. But even though we're making all of this talk about Marvel, we're actually going to rewind things a little bit all the way back to the early 90s, even earlier to 1989, with the release of Tim Burton's Batman, which is actually a lot of what is is made fun of in this episode. Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy in the world of SpongeBob SquarePants is more of a documentary. It's almost a a reality show as far as what is going on in the lives of these superheroes. When they were younger, they were actually solving crimes. They were actually stopping supervillains, and most of their exploits were shown on television. Then eventually they retired, and usually, you know, that whole idea of, well, Batman comes out into the streets of Gotham and then attracts all of these other weirdos who want to dress up in in costumes and fight people and cause issues, and that whole idea of Batman being the, the causation of all these colorful villains, so if you take him out, they'll go away. It's the same idea. All of a sudden, Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy retire, and it seems like the world just loses all of the costumed supervillains. They're all gone. They've all retired themselves. And there's no more TV show of their exploits. When we do see their show in action, the the original Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy show, it is certainly presented with a lot of tropes that you can find from a multitude of different superheroes from both Marvel and DC, of course, The way Mermaid Man is designed is very reminiscent of Aquaman. The original version of Aquaman, by the way, the the blonde-haired, orange-suited version of Aquaman that certainly was upgraded with Jason Momoa's portrayal. And there have been other comic book upgrades of of that version, but that, that classic pretty boy version of Aquaman is certainly the basis for Mermaid Man, with the original version of Aqualad being the basis for Barnacle Boy. Now, beyond their designs, the entire, you know, structure of the two is very designed after Batman and Robin, with the entire Batcave concept being adapted over into the Mermelair. The Invisible Boatmobile is certainly based off of Wonder Woman's Invisible Jet, or the Invisible Plane, what have you. There's a lot of DC references here with these characters. Uh, The whole power ring situation that they have. Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy unite, and they they have their rings together. That is certainly based off of the Wonder Twins and their whole things with rings. But with all of these put together, certainly the show of Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy and its presentation is very reminiscent of the Bill Dozier-produced 1966 Batman TV series, starring Adam West and Burt Ward as Batman and Robin, respectively. The show is an iconic piece of American television, and certainly in the world of superheroes, is one of the first 
big mainstream pieces of entertainment that we have that crossed over from comic books into the home of, of everyday citizens. Now, Batman certainly wasn't just a comic book character. He was a real guy. He was Adam West, who took that character even beyond that show all the way until they decided to make a big screen reboot of the character. And they're using actors. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. And that whole moment in the in the late 80s there is really what is lampooned here in this episode. There are legitimate fans of that early Batman show, which is legitimately cheesy. For its time, it was trying to adapt very cheesy comic books into a live-action world, and they did a commendable job for with what they had at the time. And I'm talking not only in a technical sense, in terms of set design and costumes and whatnot, but even in terms of acting. Oh, Frank Gorshin is the Riddler. My favorite Joker, Cesar Romero. And, and Adam West and Burt Ward as Batman and Robin. They're just iconic. It's a wonderful show. It is certainly cheesy. And just because something is cheesy doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Why is it that when it comes to food, if it's cheesier, it's better? But when it comes to entertainment, there are some out there that if you add a little too much cheese, they they turn away from it. They're like, whoa, whoa, what is this? We don't like this. We like a certain amount of cheese, only a, a certain smidgen of cheese, and you're adding too much cheese. And for some reason, Batman throughout the, the 70s and the, the early 80s, the mid-80s, other than the, the serious comic book readers who were, were going through an entire renaissance of stories of the Dark Knight, those in the mainstream who only knew him of that TV show thought of Batman as a joke, as a cheesy TV show in which punches would happen and giant cardboard bams and pows would show up on the screen. And then there was an announcement of Tim Burton making a new Batman film, and that Michael Keaton was going to play Batman. And if you go back to the time now, the internet was not as it is today. There wasn't Reddit or forums that you could go on to voice your concerns when it comes to casting choices. And there there wasn't that instant social media that you could hop on to voice your displeasures. It just was rumors that would be published in certain, you know, magazines. And then word of mouth would get around. And certainly the consensus of the convention scene, the comic book scene of the time, was laughter that this this actor, Mr. Mom, is going to be playing Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman. Oh my goodness, this movie is going to flop. The way that SpongeBob and Patrick acted in this episode at the beginning when they found out that actors were going to be portraying these characters was a lot of the talk of the late 80s. And I'm not saying this like I was there because I certainly wasn't even born when Batman came out. When when Batman was being made and these casting rumors was out, I was still practicing my uh, backstroke. But there's been plenty of people from the time who have repeated the sentiments that the overall consensus was not well once Michael Keaton was announced to be playing Bruce Wayne in this super serious adaptation of Batman 
from Warner Brothers, which I should bring up is is slightly parodied in this episode with Drippy Brothers, the Drippy Brothers Studios announcing a new Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy movie is in production, which sets off an entire chain of events that are about to unfold. Now, when this episode opens up, it's actually one of my favorite Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy scenes ever in the show's entire run. When the characters decided to come out of retirement, which also brought along the return of their show on television, the episodes at hand were not really that exciting. We were watching the characters play a game of chess, being interrupted by the chief calling in, which seemingly tells us that once these characters came out of retirement, maybe other supervillains also came out of retirement as well, although we never really got to see what came up of that from the episode as Mermaid Man wasn't able to correctly use the phone and just went right back to their chess game. But at the beginning of this episode, we actually get to see a current episode of the show which brought a little bit more action and flavor to a more calmed-down Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy experience. They are not going about their geriatric activities. They are still solving crimes, although they are far from the world-destroying crimes they were stopping in the 60s. We do get a supervillain in this episode at the beginning, Kelp Thing, which is certainly a play on words with the character Man-Thing, which is a, a character in the Marvel uh, series of comic books. If you have watched the Disney Plus Werewolf by Night special, then you have seen Man-Thing, the, uh, the monster that you witness in that special. Kelp Thing is certainly not a monster, but more of a guy inside of a suit made of kelp with an interesting set of eyes and an interesting attitude when it comes to parking. He parks in a no-parking zone and has one of my favorite lines in this entire episode. But I must do what I do. And has his car towed once again with the day saved by Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. Once the episode ends and the camera zooms out, we are usually expecting to be inside of SpongeBob's house, but instead we're inside of a giant gymnasium or a convention hall with the Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy fan club or society, depending on who you ask. And they are there watching what is seemingly the newest episode of the show, or at least, hey, maybe a favorite episode, cheering it on. And it's a massive group of people. You would think that, all right, maybe the Bikini Bottom fan club for these two characters is five characters tops. Bubble Bass, SpongeBob, Patrick, and the two guys from Weenie Hut Juniors, which, by the way, one of them seemingly is the president, or at least the speaker for the entire room of the of the fan club. But they are there to cheer on everything Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy, along with the announcement that Drippy Brothers Studios are going to be producing the Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy movie. And better yet, they actually sent over the main actors for the movie, and we are shown two other characters in super tight, muscular Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy attires. They're definitely going for the classic route for this movie. And although SpongeBob and Patrick are appalled at these actors coming on, portraying 
these characters that are real people, are living beings that all of these, you know, fans at least know exist. How dare they think that they can just replace real people and that some actors can just play these characters? Us as fans should boycott this movie and SpongeBob calls for a boycott. This is in 2005, mind you. Very ahead of its time. Certainly ahead of its time and very much amongst the chatter that was still happening online in the mid-2000s. I'm not going to ignore that there wasn't forums in 2003 and 2004 calling for boycotts over casting choices, calling for boycotts over films being made in general for whatever reason, but it, it just certainly feels more ahead of its time watching it now. SpongeBob and Patrick are also the only ones upset at this casting choice and are thrown out of the convention hall and bring their frustrations all the way over to Shady Shoals to let Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy know that there is a movie being made about them and that they're not a part of it. Now keep in mind, we have mentioned before that Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy are not fictional characters. They are real guys, real superheroes with real powers who has actually saved the day plenty of times in their past. So the fact that a movie is being made about them isn't necessarily against the law because there are plenty of movies and television shows that are designed for entertainment purposes that include the lives of real people who actually existed and, you know, try to tell you stories based on true events in whatever order they decide in what they think makes the most narrative sense for the story they're trying to tell. You know, there's movies based off of musicians, there's TV shows based off of real events, and as far as I know, you can certainly make a movie or a TV show based on a person, a notable event, and you may not necessarily need their permission to do so as long as you follow, I, I think, certain guidelines. So given the fact that Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy aren't fictional superheroes in this world and they're actual entities, it is completely fair for there to be a movie out there chronicling what they may have gone through or retelling a specific event that may have transpired between them and whatever villain was trying to attack whatever city and so on and so forth. If it actually happened, then fair game for them to make a movie about it. And also, I guess, fair game for them to not contact the original guys themselves. But you would think if you care about the project in any way, you would want to try to soak in as much information from the original guys as you can. And based on the fact that they're just sitting in a retirement home most of their days, I'm sure they would be more than willing to be an active part of the production of this movie. But the fact that the studio made no effort to contact the original guys, I'm sure, is not um, surprising to anyone out there working in Hollywood. I, I actually hate the lack of effort that goes into the small amount of work that, that can be found in, in these moments of of preparation and, and getting these things. 
you hear about, you know, individuals of, of real events who are significant parts of it, but then when movies are made, they're never contacted. They're never talked to. And it's like, why? Why? I have no idea. But here we have one of these events. SpongeBob and Patrick bring this issue to our heroes at hand who are upset because it seems like one of their dreams were to eventually make it to the big screen. They wanted a Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy movie, and it's a real shame that we didn't even get a cameo appearance of these characters in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, not even just a passing speaking role in that movie. It's really upsetting, and it actually is poignant that these guys just wanted to make it to the big screen and, and they weren't able to in any way. So SpongeBob and Patrick decide to take things into their own hands and go, you know what? We have the real Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy right here. Let's just make our own movie and get you guys the big screen treatment that you deserve. And off SpongeBob and Patrick go onto writing their own movie starring Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. Also a little bit ahead of its time, I gotta say, coming out in 2005. I would say... With the, with the advent of YouTube and just online video streaming and media and the ability to upload your own content, the idea of fan films has certainly risen in the last few years, and the quality of them has, has gone up as well. I'm sure anybody listening out there can think of at least one fan project that was based off of a licensed property that that came out in some decent form. Whether or not it's a video game, uh, a, a little short on YouTube, or in some cases, a feature-length movie featuring actors from some of these original properties, it is not unheard of for someone to just have enough money to have an actor with nothing to do and to go, hey, I'm a fan of, of this property. Let's make a movie together. Let's just do this and put it up online. How many of you out there have, have seen the Uncharted short film that was made with Nathan Fillion as Nathan Drake and Stephen Lang as Sully? Just a project made by fans to produce for no money. There wasn't going to be money to come from that, but hopefully you put enough effort into this little short project. It shows the world what you're able to do and it could lead to other jobs. So making a fan film is not necessarily something that could end up just being a, a dead end, especially if you're thinking basically on the sole means that you can't really make money with a fan project based off of a licensed property. Being able to show the world what you can do is ultimately what's the most important and could lead to other other instances and in some cases, in roundabout ways, working back with the company you were trying to make stuff of in your in your own world. I'm thinking about all of those uh, Sonic modders who over the years would eventually get to make their own official Sonic game, Sonic Mania, and, and that whole trajectory. So making fan projects, films, video games, writing your own short stories out there, they could always lead to something extremely beneficial for you and certainly just honing your craft in any way is going to be the ultimate beneficial part so 
continue making your stuff out there. Don't ever be worried about simply working with original properties. Sometimes working with within licensed stuff can also be beneficial. Maybe I'm just telling myself that as someone with a SpongeBob SquarePants podcast, but hey, you know what? Maybe it has to be said. But the production goes on of this movie, and as it continues, they are gaining more crew members, more actors. Mr. Krabs wants to come in and cater the affair and offer up the Krabby Patty as, as one of the central plot points of the entire movie. He offers up Pearl as the leading lady of the entire film. Patrick, of course, wants to come along and help out on the crew. And Squidward is even on board with SpongeBob playing an extremely smart trump card here when he initially put Squidward on the makeup department with Squidward wanting nothing to do with this second-rate production until SpongeBob mentions, oh wait, did I say that you're actually the makeup artist? After Squidward, we also find out that Sandy is beautifully in charge of all of the pyrotechnics and the technical whatnot that is going on behind the scenes, although Sandy's role in this entire episode is simply comic relief for the fact that anytime somebody mentions the secret word, boom, she presses down on the plunger that sets off an explosion, usually surrounding Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy, as if they're at all times covered in in pyrotechnics that have to go off. And as the movie goes on, even Plankton catches the acting bug and comes on set auditioning as Man Ray. And and by the way, I would have just hired him on the spot as Man Ray because that commitment was was truly there front and center for Plankton. And you would think with Krabby Patties being a part of the central plot of this movie, it would be Plankton's whole reason for being there. But actually that whole part of the plot never comes into play. Plankton has no interest in the Krabby Patties at all. He actually wants to play Man Ray in this movie. And although SpongeBob lets him down in the best way possible, letting him know that Man Ray is not a villain, a part of this story, there are certainly jobs around the set that could utilize all of Plankton's special abilities, including holding the boom mic. Which, of course, you can already tell is a running gag with the earlier information of where Sandy is on set at all times. But Plankton's commitment, you would think, of just holding this giant boom stand would lead to him wanting to get closer to the Krabby Patties. But at no point in this episode does he make an attempt to steal a Krabby Patty, which means he legitimately just wanted to be a part of this movie. And my heart kind of goes out to Plankton in a way. For, for trying his hardest to, to be on camera, and then certainly trying his hardest, given that being a boom pole operator is certainly one of the most tedious jobs that you could have on a film set if you are working at it all day. You're going to have to have an extreme amount of upper arm strength to just hold that pole for a severe amount of time. You have to hold it in a specific way and, and sometimes pay attention as to who's talking to know where you should be 
pointing that that mic and what direction it should be at. So there's a lot going on. And the fact that Plankton just gets handed this job and goes, fine, I'll do it. I want to be a part of this movie and doesn't even do anything else that we would expect him to do. I, I love that. Another wrinkle to the entire story of Sheldon J. Plankton. <laughs> Sheldon! Will you please? Right. Of course, the production goes about as well as you could imagine it does with even the the opening lines of Mermaid Man taking over 5,000 takes to get out of his mouth, which is very reminiscent of one of my favorite Homestar Runner uh, shorts of Homestar starring in a commercial for Fluffy Puff Marshmallows and just going through take after take having the inability of just getting this simple line out. And even when he's able to get the line out, something still happens that messes up the take. So they have to do it all over again. They, they only stay on this part of the story for, for so long, but it, it's still effective. It's really effective with the character of mermaid man. And especially in the one moment that he actually gets the line, right? Planked in the boom pole operator who of course ruins the perfect shot and just causes more frustrations onto director SpongeBob SquarePants, who wants to move on to another part of the movie. Kelp Thing's hideout is at the top of this mountain, and Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy are going to be riding the invisible boatmobile up the side of this mountain, but they don't necessarily have the boatmobile with them. But what they do have is Pearl, who thought that she was going to be a bigger part of this plot, but finds herself in a position where... She's going to be used more as a prop than as an actor. Although she does get a bit of a pep talk from Mr. Krabs as like, hey, you're going to be a big part of helping to get these these two heroes up to where they, they need to get. And with that pep talk, we find ourselves in this awkward situation where one bikini bottomite is pulling up Pearl, who is laying on some wheels, and she's making boating noises while Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy are sitting atop her. This poor guy is just pulling up Pearl using rope while SpongeBob and Patrick are filming from the, the bottom of this mountain. Before we can even reach the top of the mountain, this guy loses grip of the entire situation. The, the wheeled platform that all of these characters are riding upon goes down the mountain off of a ramp, and Pearl... Mermaid Man, Barnacle Boy go flying through the air all the way back on top of the set, literally destroying everything. Which, of course, you would think at first would be detrimental, but SpongeBob is optimistic that they had to have caught some great footage, and as long as everything worked out on the camera's front, they should be able to salvage some part of the movie until we find out that, of course, when you're working on a movie set, the last person you want operating the camera is that of Patrick Starr. <laughs> who apparently forgot to take the lens cap off of the camera, even though there were shots ahead of time that we can clearly see the camera lens off of the camera. It is very much a Patrick thing to do, to leave the camera lens on the entire time. But honestly, I have to put most of the blame on SpongeBob since he was the one who, A, put Patrick in charge of the camera in the first place, and B, didn't check on the camera throughout the production 
of the shoot. So a lot of that blame has to fall on SpongeBob. But in this moment, Bob goes through an absolute meltdown. It's almost as if his brain goes to mush and his mind just goes, and he just loses it in front of everybody on set. There's just a little bit of a freak out for him before he comes to his senses and just lets everybody know the emotions that are going on through his mind. He just wanted to make the greatest Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy movie there is. He has these heroes that he adores. He doesn't like that they're being disrespected by by Hollywood and these actors out there and wants to make sure that they're properly represented. Mermaid Man comes over to console SpongeBob, which at first starts out very somber, but of course turns in to a very energetic speech of Mermaid Man, which almost sets a fire behind the soul of SpongeBob SquarePants for continuing this movie. Take take this passion of yours and push it forward. Go and finish what you wanted to start. And it's with this new rejuvenated energy of Mermaid Man that SpongeBob is able to finish the movie. We cut to the eventual premiere of the film happening at the Krusty Krab with a crying Mr. Krabs um, upset over the fact that he had to close the Krusty Krab a little early for this, which I have no idea why you would have to close early. Why don't you just have the premiere after the Krusty Krab normally closes? I don't understand why Mr. Krabs felt the need that they had to close a little early for this event, which SpongeBob is sure is going to work out for Mr. Krabs, as eventually a crowd of Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy fans, including the entire fan club, run into the Krusty Krab, as it's not just to see the actual real Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy film, it's because the other one was was sold out. There's no more tickets, which makes this the second place movie for all of these Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy fans, but hey, they're with the real deal superheroes in tow to watch their premiere take on the big screen. And although the movie is incredibly short, it's not the greatest production in the world. What's really important is that Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy themselves got to feel something. They got to feel important once again in their lives. They got to be on the big screen like they always dreamed. And it doesn't matter that by the end of this episode, we don't really get to see the reception of the fans of Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. Although the characters that we see surrounding our main characters in the crowd certainly don't seem too pleased at the at the short film. But the happiness of Mermaid Man, Barnacle Boy, and SpongeBob is what is the most important. And in a lot of ways is exactly the position I would want to find myself in if I was SpongeBob. If I eventually get to work with a hero of mine down the road, and even if they're past what people may call their prime, if I'm a part of an ability to help them feel something again, that would personally mean more to me than most other solitary opinions out there. So... Certainly what Spongebob was able to do in this episode as a fan is something pretty close to my heart. So uh, hopefully I get to find myself in a, a position like Spongebob's in this episode. But who knows? Only time will tell. Although there was a lot to love about this episode with the way they handled the story and the comedy, 
One thing I gotta critique about this episode was just the overuse of very quick one or two second up close shots of characters and hands, which took away from the moments when they wanted to showcase something up close, which happened like very frequently in this episode. It felt more so than any other episode up to this point, which by the way, showing up close shots is, is a very common trope that has been ongoing since the Ren and Stimpy show all the way back in, in Nickelodeon's early history. So when you have up-close shots of, like, the disgusting-looking Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy after the makeup artist Squidward gets a hold of them, you know that that money shot is coming. You know that that frame is going to be present. But then even beforehand, in the, in the makeup part where Squidward is looking at, at each of the characters up-close... We get up-close shots of their disgusting looks. We get up-close shots of SpongeBob's bony hands when he's looking through like a director, like he's making the screen with his fingers. There just felt like there was an overabundance of those little moments that I, I think in just smaller doses are more effective than when it's just every single shot doesn't need to be super funny. You don't need to put in that much effort. And I know that for some future seasons of SpongeBob, that style becomes a little bit more of the norm and we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I just noticed it a lot more so in this episode than any other episode beforehand. Uh, even, even the whole up close shot of the realistic mouth with SpongeBob saying actors that was used twice we also have a realistic shot of crabs fighting, which I think is used in the in the footage of the Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy movie. There's just a lot of different techniques at play here and a lot of different details. And some of them are extremely funny, but there's others that I felt could have been held back so that the other times that you do go over-detailed or over-expressive those can land a little bit more than when every other second you're trying to have a frame that is hilarious, which I know for some is a philosophy where every single frame should make you laugh or else it's not an effective comedic cartoon. But I do think in certain circumstances, especially when you go for these extremely detailed, gross shots, that less is more and that I wished they pumped the brakes a little bit in this episode, but it honestly feels that up to this point in the show's run, this might be my only real solid complaint of an episode that I've had. One that I can point to and say, hey, I didn't like that. I didn't like the overuse of that. But it's still an extremely enjoyable episode, and certainly one I, I can't not recommend if you're a SpongeBob fan. One of my favorites of this season, and even though it's not the last time that we will get to hang out with Ernest and Tim as Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy, it's the last time we will get to experience these characters in a title card. They will have other title cards that will be a play on words, and Mermaid Man certainly has a title card of his own in Season 5, but this is the last numbered episode of the Nautical Duo, and it is certainly... One great episode to end that, that numbered tradition on. 
I want to once again thank Stella for taking the time to write that email to me. It really, it really is a nice gesture to receive an email. So, if any members of the Ready Crew ever want to send an email with a question, a suggestion, anything pertaining to SpongeBob SquarePants, if you have something that you want to show off in your collection that's cool, I don't mind opening up more of the show to fans. That's always been the point. So you can email me once again at spongepod, P-O-D, podcast, at gmail.com, spongepodpodcast, at gmail.com. And you can also find me on social media at I'm Ready Podcast on Twitter and at SpongeBobPodcast on Instagram. Between all of those forms of contact and subscribing to the Captain Eric YouTube channel, through any of those means, stop by and say hi. Hi! Hi! If you enjoy what you see or hear, certainly stick around through the YouTube channel. More video content coming. But also, if you would like to hear other podcasts from Captain Eric, my other podcast, This Week in Nickelodeon History, drops every Sunday on most conceivable podcasting platforms. If you like to listen to podcasts on a platform where you don't find I'm Ready or This Week in Nickelodeon History, send me an email with your podcast platform of choice, and I will do my darndest to get it out there. It is it is my pleasure to bring whatever I can out to the masses, and hopefully you guys enjoy what you're listening to. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of the podcast, and as we are getting into the heat of the holiday season, I hope each and every one of you out there are staying safe. I hope you're bundled up if it's starting to get cold, and, and please, when it comes to shopping, you don't need to trample over people for any deals. It's never worth it. Just shop online or just, you know, wait until things die down before you you go into the stores. I know that's usually a Black Friday thing, but you never know through the thick of the holiday season what could lurk around. Usually at the end of these episodes, I normally have some audio from the episode at hand. But since I recommended this episode so highly, I think you should just go and watch it yourself. Instead, I found some audio that brought a tear to my eye of Ernest Borgnine talking about his working relationship with that of Tim Conway, and I had no idea that the conversation would eventually bring up their work on SpongeBob SquarePants, but it was beautiful to hear, so I'm going to leave you with Mermaid Man himself, Ernest Borgnine, and as always, please stay safe, be kind to one another, and come aboard again to another episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Tim Conway and I are still buddies, still friends. We now work, believe it or not, as voices. SpongeBob. I play Mermaid Man, and he plays Barnacle Boy. And and uh, we met at that at, at you know at the first time we did it. We looked at each other and said, "What are we doing here?" <laughs> but he's the most one. I'll tell you. I'll tell you, when, when, when you see Tim Conway, you look at him and you say, what does this man do? You know, you, you kind of nothing, you know, until he hears the whir of the motor. <laughs> and then he turns on. It's like the very first time that I ever saw him, and I didn't know that he was going to be on the show. Nobody said a word, you know, and the fella comes in, and, and he's coming in on this boat, 
and he's arriving on my island on a boat, and he's holding onto the rope, you know, out up in the bow. Suddenly the boat stops, and and he kept going right into the drink. <laughs> did he do it in person? He did it in person. Oh. And that was Tim Conway. <laughs> I tell you, the most wonderful, God bless him, the most honest fellow that you can ever imagine. Never saying too much, never just, just quiet, nice, but he was there all the time and just wonderful.